It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This morning when I was having breakfast, I was simultaneously having breakfast, enjoying uh, a really delicious smoothie bowl, trying to give me some energy because I knew we were going to be having a conversation with our guest today. Her name is Beth Cavanaugh. She's a hospice nurse and she has some really, really heartfelt and sagacious perspectives on end of life care that we are going to get into today. As I was preparing and reading a little bit more, Beth, about your work and what you do. I took a deep dive down the rabbit hole of your blog and your website, which we will link to in the show notes at uh, wellevator.com. It's bethcavanaugh.com. We'll put all Beth's links and everything where you can learn more about Beth's wonderful work, her book, everything she's doing in the world. We'll have all that at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in the transcript and show notes for this episode. And as I was sitting there enjoying my breakfast, Beth, and, and reading your blog posts, I spontaneously started crying in my smoothie bowl. And it was such an interesting moment because it was just, I literally just started welling up out of nowhere. Although truth be told, it wasn't out of nowhere. I was reading specifically uh, two of your blog posts. One, which was so, it was so visceral to me, was travel metaphors at the end of life. And I want to preface this by saying, Beth, that I I have not yet had the honor or the privilege of caring for a loved one at the end of their life. The people that I've lost in my life have been very sudden. Car accidents, unexpected things. I haven't yet had that opportunity to care for someone in, in hospice. As I was reading this this article that you wrote, this blog post about travel metaphors, and you, you were talking about this man named Jack and his mag light that was under his pillow and, and some of these interesting things that you've noticed that people focus on at the end of their lives. As I was done crying and, and finished my breakfast, I sat for a moment and I thought, well, that was really interesting. Why did I just spontaneously start crying? And I thought, well, it can't be for no reason. And I had a realization, Beth, and I want to lead with something that I think I'm admitting to myself for the first time that subconsciously I knew, but I've never actually spoken words to, which is I am absolutely terrified of my mother and who I consider a father figure, my mentor dying. And I've had recent conversations with both of them about their will, their estates, being the executor of their estates. So this conversation with you today is very, I think, perfectly timed and I guess the first question, Beth, with all of that said is, is it normal and how would you speak to someone who has this fear that I've just now identified and spoken publicly for the first time of caring for our elders or our parents because I've never done it. And I think reading your blog posts has given me a little bit of comfort, but I'm still feeling terrified about this inevitability. So for someone who's never done this before... Where would you lead someone? How do we start with this conversation? <laughs> yeah, I think that there are two very different things. Fear of being with your mom when she's dying and fear of being the executor of her estate. 
And I think it might be scarier to be the executor of the estate. (laughs) With that being said, you know, when my mom was dying, I was age 28 and she was 58. And I had been a nurse for two years and I'd been with some patients by that point who had died before. And I was terrified and I was terrified to be her caregiver and to be responsible for managing her pain and her shortness of breath and honoring her wishes. But I think that the more you just step towards, lean into the discomfort and know that it's scary and just keep showing up, it can be, you can have some of the most profound moments of your life and your mom's life. I mean, it's really like the greatest gift that you can get is to be able to take care of somebody that you love at the end of their life. And I know it's terrifying and scary. I mean, that was in 1998. So it was a long time ago that my mom died. But you know, I never will regret that time with her. It was really probably the some of the best moments that we ever had those last three months of her life when she was dying. And I think it's because we developed this intimacy, you know, as I was taking care of her that we had never really had. And she certainly didn't disclose everything to me that was going on in her brain, but she was open and she was honest and she was receptive and she was vulnerable and she was real. And, you know, I just felt really lucky that I was able to be with her. And of course, that's why I continue this work because I know how powerful it can be at the end of somebody's life. And, you know, you were talking about the travel metaphors. There's also this really divine kind of sacred space that I feel like shows up at the end of this, at the end of one's life. And um, to be part of that journey is really pretty special too. So, I mean, you will be afraid and it will be scary and it will be awkward and it will be clunky and you will feel like you can't do it. And you just keep showing up and taking breaths and, you know doing it. It's part of loving somebody. I'm just so grateful you're here today, Beth. I feel in some ways that this is the first time I'm really considering the inevitability of this for the first time in my life. I'm in my mid forties now. And again, Whitney and I as best friends have been having conversations about our mortality more recently and certainly having these conversations with my mom and my mentor, Michael, who again, He's essentially my father. I call him my father. It's <laughs> it's essentially that space he holds in my life. But part of it, Beth, I think is thinking about their care and their comfort and how I can best be there for them when the time comes is a mirror into my own mortality. And I don't... Death is a strange thing in that way, isn't it? Because there's an awareness of the inevitability of it, yet... I'm having more experiences, whether it's in meditation or having conversations with my older loved ones, where now it's more real than it's ever been. Not that I feel close to death, not not even that my mother or my loved ones are in a state where they're close either, but maybe it's just the passage of time and having these conversations that are very open and very vulnerable and very loving where I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, yes, I'm going to leave this body as well. 
it's just an interesting thing that I don't know. I meditate on death a lot and not necessarily in a morose or a macabre way. I'm just thinking about it more than I ever have in my life, which is interesting to observe. Do you find that one of the reasons it is challenging for people is because it, it perhaps forces you to consider your own mortality as well? Um, definitely. I mean, I think most people don't like to go down that road and think about it. And I see it all the time with hospice patients and families who are really surprised, you know, when a terminal diagnosis happens at age 90, even, you know, and I mean, for me, when I was taking care of my mom and my dad, well, my dad was taking care of my mom as well, but he really never believed that she would die. I mean, he really, I think he felt like his role was her cheerleader. His role was to feed her steak and eggs and get her healthy and just never believe that she would die. And so when she did die, I really felt like he was surprised. And that happens a lot, even when patients are on hospice, like my mom was. And for months, you know, the hospice nurse comes in and talks to us about hospice care and the end of life and what end of life signs are and what medications to give. You know, you can kind of be in this state of denial the whole time. That leads me to something else, which is denial about your own mortality and how often people are surprised that they're dying. And I actually thought about this the other day, and I still feel very removed from it. Like thinking about your own mortality is really a bizarre thing, right? Like, how does your brain process it? And I, I can't remember what it was. It was like, it was something, I don't know if it was like a COVID related thought or like some disaster. It might've been something cute in my head. And I was like, wow, I wonder what that's like. And I also wondered, of course, disaster is different from like, body failure, because generally you have at least some time to process, even if it's just a few days, right? But if there's a disaster, you might not even have a chance to think about your death. It just happens. And some people hope that happens to them or they die in their sleep. So they don't have to mentally process it and have that fear. And I was just reflecting on like, wow, it's such an interesting thing that we will never know the answer to until it happens to us how our brain even reacts and processes. But I'm thinking about some people in my life who are, and Jason and I have talked about this a number of times, especially Jason with your work on longevity, right? Like we know so many people who are obsessed with optimizing their bodies. And I think it's like this coping mechanism. Like maybe if I can optimize my body, I can live as long as possible and prevent death. But the truth is, we see healthy or apparently healthy people get sick. We see people have accidents. We see even people who think that they're safe enough to avoid death through, you know, risk taking die despite everything that they tried to prevent it. And it's like none of us have any idea when that time will come. But yet many people live their lives almost feeling invincible. And I'm curious how that comes up in hospice. Like, is working in hospice a time where people are accepting? Are they still in denial? Like, what are some of the emotions that are expressed during that time? Well, I think I just want to circle back to the one thing that you said about optimizing your body. I think there's nothing wrong with optimizing your body so you can have a good quality of life however long you have left. You know, I mean, I'm always trying to 
be as strong as I can because as a nurse, we're always lifting and hoisting and, you know, helping people get up and out of bed. And so I'm always trying to optimize my body so that I can live in this body in the way that I want to live in the world, you know, as much as I can prevent things and and make my life better. So I'm kind of a fan of optimizing the body. (laughs) That makes sense to me. When people come on to hospice, there is definitely a wide range of emotions. I mean, I think most people really are not ready to die unless they are in their 90s and maybe they've lost a partner, really good friends already, and they have thought long and hard that this is their reality. And they've processed their life and they've lived a good life. And, you know, so I really think my patients who are very old, they are the ones who are much more accepting about death. Under 90, I feel like all bets are off. You have fear, you have disappointment in your body, you have anger at your creator, you have, you know, why me, why now, denial, There's just a wide range. And part of what we do as a hospice team, because we have a social worker and a chaplain and a CNA and a nurse on staff, we kind of know that this is part of the process, the processing, you know, of one's death and the reality that they're going to die. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful parts, I think, of being a hospice nurse is that we're in their lives while this journey is going on and you build trust with your patient over time and you have a relationship with them, ideally, even I mean, you can make really quick relationship in 30 minutes, you know, talking about somebody's death and you can build really trust really quickly too. And so we just know that this is part of the process is really allowing the patient to wonder and go through the murky mystery of death. Why now? What's next? Am I ready? Am I not ready? Is there any business that I need to tidy up? You know, that's, people do come to an acceptance, not everybody, but that's part of, I think the goal, one of the goals of hospice anyway, is to kind of help people on this journey, be more accepting of their death. And it's such a beautiful thing that I'm personally very grateful for. And I'll, I'll try to talk about this without choking up or crying. Choke up. I'll choke choke up. up. It's okay. <laughs> you know, when Jason was talking about having not the experience of caring for someone, I haven't either, but I do have the experience of my last grandparent who passed away, having spent time with him in hospice. And it was really a tough time because his he died when he was like 97 and a half and great, right? Like got a lot of time with him. Although we were all rooting for him to live to 100. And he himself, he was like a little, I felt, I don't know if he was disappointed, but I think the, the family was like, ah, he was so close, you know? <laughs> Not that it matters. Actually, and that's something I'm curious to circle back on living to 100, Beth, because I'm Jason. Jason actually had a TV show called How to Live to 100. So he's got, he's got like um, a lot about it. So remind me, Jason, to come back to that. But uh, my point in bringing up my grandfather was that I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with him and seeing like the journey that he went on at the end of his life. And it was such an odd time because we were really close and I was scared, like Jason was saying, but I had enough time to process it, which I think is like one of the greatest gifts versus my grandmother, his wife, 
she passed away more suddenly. And it was like, I didn't get to process it. And I didn't go to visit her in hospice. I don't think she went into hospice. But even if she did, I didn't get to go. Whereas with my grandfather, I got to go into the hospice. And I was so grateful about the place they picked because the nurses were just magnificent. The facilities was incredible. And it was such an important experience because it was like, oh, I I hope my parents, if they end up in hospice, get this type of situation. I hope I get to spend time with them. Like my dad got to spend time with his father. And I also was reminded of this when you were speaking of how it is a really special moment because the last time I saw my grandfather was less than 48 hours before he passed And we just sat and talked and he, luckily he was lucid. Like he was almost his normal self and he sat and we talked and I felt like I could ask him anything. And he was, it was like a beautiful, but sad memory. And, you know, you never feel like you have enough time. And that's another interesting thing that I experienced through that process is like, I still wish I had more time you know? And it's, I'm curious, like how your perception of time and like how both parties feel like the people that are there grieving, but also the people that are in hospice themselves, what is their relationship to time that you've observed? Well, I'm glad you had that time with your grandfather because that's really special. I mean, especially because he was lucid, you know, a lot of times we don't have that amazing time where everybody knows it's the end and you won't be able to see this person again, right? It Everything is heightened when that's the case. And you could ask him any question. And so I, I'm, I feel, I'm glad you brought that up just because it showcases that people can take advantage of this really sacred time in terms of the relationship and all the memories that you created, because that does help with your grief, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, it still feels sad and it will never feel not sad, but, but you have these really special moments, you know? So I think that kind of connection really helps with the grief piece. I think in terms of time, I mean, (laughs) I have so many patients who take a long time to die and they don't know why. And They often say out loud, you know, I don't know why it's taking so long. And I just tell them, you know, it takes a long time to create a little human. (laughs) It takes a long time for this body to exit the earth and, you know, decline and die. So I have, that is definitely a piece. And, you know, of course, I have a lot of patients who are not ready to go and, feel like time is just too short and too fast. And people die in a wide variety of ways. There's not just one way that patients die. Sometimes it's fast. So on hospice, sometimes it's really fast. Sometimes it's really slow. Sometimes there's a terminal event that we could not have necessarily anticipated. So there's just a wide variety and range in terms of when patients die. And yes, I mean, the experience is both is everything (laughs) in terms of time. Do I have enough time? Do I have too little time? And I imagine that that's part of where like 
the discomfort is, is the unknowing. And Jason, like going back to the fear, you know, I actually remember my fear about that grandfather passing away. I mean, I had that for as long as I like realized that he was going to pass away. I remember like being young and probably 10 years before he passed away, I was like fearful of that time because I didn't know how much time I had with him. And that's like such a, it's uncomfortable, really. It's just a mm-hmm. very unpleasant mental process of like, mm-hmm. I don't know how much time I have. And I think sometimes that causes us to live life fuller. And sometimes that causes us to live in fear. And Jason, I, I'm very curious about your relationship with that. But before we get to it, the other question I had, Beth, is like, how do you mentally deal with other people's sadness, especially like, we often have a tendency to apologize or like feel embarrassed about showing emotion, you know, like, I don't know if I, how much I felt that when I was visiting my grandfather, like I, I felt like the energy in that hospice center was so kind and accepting, but like, there's still a little bit of a surface level for many of us, myself included, where I don't want to like burden other people with my sadness or grief, And I imagine you're in a way used to it, but the person grieving is not used to it. So it's like more uncomfortable for them. And if you're a people pleaser, you're like hyper aware of how you're impacting others. And like, how do you navigate that awkwardness? (laughs) I mean, I feel like this is one of the reasons, another reason why I'm in hospice is because it feels so real. You know, I get kind of tired of all the the bullshit, everything's okay. You know, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. It's all good. It's all good. Cause it's not all good. And you just, you can't fake that in hospice. And so I love the depth and I love the authenticity that people have to bring to the bedside, whether you're the patient or the family. And I've really developed a lot of practices myself just to keep myself composed and grounded you know, there's, I have various meditation, yoga, walking, naps. (laughs) I have a lot of practices that I do to stay grounded so that I'm less flappable as a nurse because the grief is heavy and it's intense and you feel like you just want to like wash it off your body at the end of your shift some days because it, you know, it's just really heavy. But I navigate the awkwardness by just leaning into it staying at the bedside when it feels like you can always feel when the grief is bubbling to the surface and I stay there, you know, it's just being there, showing up, being present to their suffering, bearing witness to their suffering allows for the validation of their feelings. And, you know, that's part of what we do is we support this emotional burden that people are going through. So I just stay in the room and I ha- we have tissues nearby always. And, you know, part of the work is just being with them in their grief. So I actually, I feel like it's a, it's a real privilege. It's, it's a damn privilege, honestly, just to be with people. Yeah, it really is because people are so vulnerable and, you know, I don't know these the patients or the families real well. It's not like we're family friends or anything, but people are really vulnerable. And I like that a lot, actually. Beth, I know um, you 
have so many resources on your website, as I mentioned earlier. And one of the resources that I'm looking forward to diving into is your book called Some Light at the End. And I feel like, especially at this time in my life, you know, having this guide to, you know, be better informed, be prepared, anticipate some of the questions that I don't have answers to yet. I, I really want to pick up a copy of your book. And the first book that I remember starting to read, I didn't finish it, <laughs> truth be told. That's but fair. The, the, the first book that I remember skimming through and, and extracting some of the highlights on a similar subject was um, Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And in your work, what do you observe in terms of that subject? What do you see people regretting? What do you see people looking back on their life and saying, I wish I would have done X? I'm curious what you've heard over the years in terms of that framework of, of people lamenting in their lives. I think often, I mean, that's just according to my empirical <laughs> data, you know, picking up along the way in nursing, a lot of the regret has to do with relationship issues and struggles. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say, I wish I had more money, <laughs> but the relationship struggles, I mean, you, that's pretty apparent. Sometimes patients are waiting for somebody before they die to come. Sometimes patients linger in this space of dying for a really long time. And the family and friends are just wondering, what do they need to die in peace? And a lot of times that's what comes up is that there's this relationship that has not been dealt with or forgiveness that has not occurred yet or some peace of mind. I mean, I think that's the biggest regret that I see. And I see a lot of patients really look back on their life. It's it's kind of beautiful. I see more patients really look back on their life with this sense of gratitude. It kind of feels like they're trying to like find the peace and really look back and process, you know, I did my best. I tried my best. You know, I, I love my son so much and I love his wife so much. And I'm so glad, you know, I just see all this processing that's happening. And I really do think it's them coming to a sense of peace about their life. So I may not have answered your question successfully, but that's just kind of what came up. You did. I think the fact that you said relationships and forgiveness and, and gratitude, and you specifically said, you know, they're not thinking about money or... <laughs> It makes me think, Beth, about our priorities in life while we are alive and how much emphasis, particularly here in the West, that we put on materialism, money, career success, ego, fame, etc. We talk a lot about that here on the podcast of the psychological dynamics of the, the hustle and the chase of those external things. So to hear you say relationship, gratitude, family forgiveness, healing is what is on people's minds. It's a profound reframing of you know what the hell am I focusing on right now? Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful mirror to think of where I'm putting my energy and my focus in my life. I have a big, I don't want to quantify it as like the biggest question of the podcast, but it's certainly to me something that feels big and existential and I want you to feel free to pontificate as deeply and as broadly and in as much detail as you want. What do you think happens when we die? Oh, <laughs> so I 
feel like, and of course I don't know for certain, but I feel like when we die, there is beauty and warmth and light and people are free from their physical bodies and people are free from their emotional trauma, their emotional body. Freedom is kind of the the word that keeps ringing true for me. I feel like people really experience their freedom. And, you know, with hospice, we have patients who have an illness, right? So they, they are in these diseased bodies most of the time and suffering in some way. I really do get a sense of freedom and beauty and warmth and light. And I, I also feel like there is a layer. You know, you were talking about the travel metaphor blog that I wrote there. I feel like there's a spiritual layer that exists wherever, and we can still communicate with our ancestors. People have died before us, and there is still relationship that can be had. I mean, after my mom died, I felt like I developed this really beautiful relationship with her spiritually. And maybe that helped me to kind of work myself through my grief. But, you know, here I am years later, 22 years later, and I still feel like I have a really deep relationship with her spiritually. So I really feel like there's there's something else out there and it feels really good to me. <laughs> so I don't know if that's too Pollyanna-ish, but that's, that's, I mean, it helps me live in my life and in this body, you know, kind of believing that. And and I've really had enough experiences at the bedside, patients who ha- are talking with their loved ones who have died, their husbands who died 10 years prior, or, you know, holding a baby that they lost, or, you know, I've, or they've been talking to Jesus in the room, you know, and they said, Jesus is here with me. And So I can't help but think that there's some other spiritual realm that is good and it's beautiful. That is beautiful. And then my brain went to an interesting place. So here's another big, big, heavy question. When you're describing that, there's peace in and comfort in a way of thinking like, oh, maybe life feels more free or maybe I'm free of pain or suffering. And and then I wonder, well, maybe that is too appealing. What about people who are struggling? And this is a trigger warning for anyone listening or watching or, or reading. But what if that sounds too comforting to someone who's thinking maybe life is better in death or maybe death Mm -hmm. is better than life and they choose to end their own lives. And Mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope because, you know, one thing I noticed and that's really coming up right now, there's a lot of people that are afraid that the world is going to end because of climate change or the pandemic or whatever else. And thinking like, Oh, we only have till 2030. And you see all these young people posting on social media about this now, about like, why do I bother even living life as normal if life is just going to end in nine years, you know, and, and people starting to think differently, which, which maybe is empowering, like all this like superficial BS in the world doesn't matter, because life is going to end shortly. So I might as well just do what I want. That sounds great. But what about people who, who think life is really hard right now, and death sounds more appealing? 
So I'm going to take my own life. I'm curious if you have thoughts on that or any experience, Beth, like do people end their own lives in hospice in your experience? I mean, that must happen in some cases because maybe not assisted death, depending on if it's legal or not, but like, does that happen? And has that happened to you where they make that choice? And how do you navigate that? I haven't ever had personally a patient who's committed suicide. You know, we're, I'm in Oregon, so we have physician aid in dying here, which is physician-assisted suicide, what people refer to it as. And so I have patients who are exploring that as an option. You know, usually as they're on hospice, that's kind of, you have to have two doctors that agree you have a terminal illness. And so a lot of patients who choose to use physician aid in dying are simultaneously on hospice. And, you know, a lot of what we do is kind of navigate the emotional burden of, you know, someone's death. And part of what we do in hospice is hopefully alleviate pain and shortness of breath, anxiety, you know, all those symptoms so that people choose not to, I mean, our goal isn't to Okay, let me back up for a sec. I've had patients choose physician aid in dying, and that's just their choice. I mean, they have a terminal illness, and here in Oregon, it's legal. They didn't want to suffer, and that's why they went down that road. But as far as suicide goes, I feel like that's not really my area. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'd much rather believe that it's beautiful and warm. And I mean, I think about my death all the time and it doesn't make me want to kill myself ever. I've never, I've never had that notion. I've never been in that space, but like I had a deep tissue massage the other day. And as I was lying there at the end, I thought I would feel so happy. Like if I died right now, because I felt so like relaxed and like kind of one with (laughs) whatever, I don't know. I just felt so relaxed and comfortable. And I thought, oh, this is how a body should feel before somebody dies. I want all my patients to feel comfortable and relaxed and peaceful and calm and yeah. So sorry, I'm just kind of rambling on and on. I, I don't know about suicide and how to like prevent that if that's something I, if my end of life scenario includes a beautiful, happy, warm, sunny place. <laughs> I want to get back to the esoteric stuff, Beth, because I'm into it. And clearly you're, you're very open to describing what you've observed with your patients in your own, I guess, let's call it cosmology your own personal belief system. You know, we have the backdrop over all of human history of, of different religions and spiritual traditions talking about things like karma, things like reincarnation, or we hear a lot that there's a, a soul contract that our, our essence, our soul agrees to embody here as a human being for perhaps a certain I don't know, mission or set of things we need to experience. There's the idea of oneness, that we are part of a unified field theory or universal consciousness, that we're here to break free from the illusion of our separateness, that it's not Whitney and Jason and Beth talking, you know, ha ha ha, we're in these, we're playing the role of Beth and Jason and Whitney, but that's not actually what's going on. 
I'm rambling. I want to pass it to you, Beth. In, in your cosmology, what's your take on all this? Do you have anything further you can share of, of if you align with any of these spiritual beliefs, if you have your own sort of pastiche of what you believe? I want to dig a little deeper into that because I'm curious where you stand on it. Can you start with your belief and then I might be able to share mine? <laughs> <laughs> wow. How's that for I, I, passing the buck? Yeah, no, you're, I think I think you you might be one of the only guests who've ever been like, tell me what you think first. <laughs> I think I'm still figuring it out, to be quite honest. I was raised in a very traditional Roman Catholic family in Detroit and was given the framework of heaven and hell and given the framework of good works and sin. And I think it is interesting, though, in college, I was studying philosophy of religion, and I read the Bible, and I read the Quran, and got into the teachings of the Buddha, and and it seems to me that the concept of heaven, nirvana, the Elysian fields, th there is this idea of a different realm, a non-physical realm that we have the ability to access. And I've had some experiences through flotation tank therapy through holotropic breathing, through psychedelics, where I felt like I was dying. And when I say that, I don't mean physical death, but I was aware that I was not fully in my body, so to speak. It was almost like this observer state of, oh, you're not your body. So I guess my long answer, Beth, is I think there is a, another dimension, reality, place, perspective that we can access or go to when we are certainly freed from these bodies. But I think through certain experiences while we're in these bodies, we can have a taste of it or a glimpse of it. So that, that I guess gives me hope when I start to feel afraid of, of losing the people I love or, or even me packing my bags for the next place. I don't know that I have a name for it though. I just have a sensation mm -hmm. that there's another place. And perhaps when I go to that place, I'll have a choice. I hope have a choice in where I go next. I don't know. Maybe it's like a way station. Maybe it's like a bus stop or a train station. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out too. Yeah. And I think that's our life's journey, right? I mean, it's, it's just kind of our ongoing spiritual journey of what's next. I certainly don't have anything dialed in stone and it is ever changing. I have had a few experiences at the bedside where I have a uh, really kind of had this visualization happen. And I have not talked about this at all with really anybody, but where I've had probably eight different experiences where this kind of visualization came up. And I really felt like I was walking my patient down this kind of corridor to the next mystery. And and each patient had their own way that they exited. Some flew, some rode off on a motorcycle, some went out on a Viking ship. And, you know, so it was really unique and pertained to the patient. And this was me not even really knowing some of the patients that well. But so that happened. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what's next, but I, I just have to believe that there's something more than this life on this earth. And yeah, I just can't believe this would be it. <laughs> Sorry, it's really simple. Yeah, no, I, simple is sometimes 
and simple and real. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to pass it to you, Whitney. What do you think? I don't know what I, I think. I, I don't, I haven't given it much thought, to be honest. <laughs> so I, I'm just kind of processing the possibilities, but yeah, I, I don't have like a solidified mm-hmm. <laughs> answer mm-hmm. to this, yeah. oddly enough. No, I think it's not solid. So it makes sense. We don't know. We've never died. Yeah, on a totally, well, it's not a different subject, but one thing I've always been curious about, and again, what is real, right? I mean, that's a very, it's a tricky word when I use the word real. I've had some pretty interesting past life experiences with spiritual practitioners, but I've questioned whether or not those are actual like past life recall, or if it was my my beautifully creative mind creating, Mm -hmm. I don't know, some sort of an illusion. But I have had two experiences in my life where it's really, it, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast. And one in particular I, I had was, I was working with this spiritual healer in Los Angeles like 12 years ago, and I had this visceral sensation of being a Roman soldier dying on the field of combat, and he was my general like looking over me, like holding me as I was dying. It felt different than, I don't know, it just felt different. I can't explain it. I can't explain, it was just such a visceral thing of like, oh my God. And so it, it, that was the first time it made me think like, wow, maybe, maybe I've been here before in different incarnations. It was the first time I started to consider the possibility of reincarnation, which that's something I still, to your point, we don't know. And maybe that's the greatest, one of the greatest mysteries, right? Is where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going after we die? I mean, these are, these are the biggest questions we can munch on as human beings. And I'm curious, Beth, this is a line of work that you are doing that I would venture to say, I don't know that I would be suited for. And perhaps some of our listeners may question whether they would have the, I don't know, emotional fortitude to do what you do. Why do you do what you do and what brought you to this work? Because it amazes me that you're able to do this. I don't know that I would have the capacity to do it. What brought you to this and why do you do it? I think there's just a lot of roads that led me to hospice. I mean, the the biggest experience was my mom's own death. And the fact that I was able to be her caregiver and be her daughter at the same time, you know, it's a really deep look into what all my families are experiencing. And it's certainly a relatable thing when I'm at the bedside with other families. I don't ever talk about my mom's death while I'm working because that doesn't ever seem helpful. It kind of minimizes other people's grief and loss that they're experiencing. But I can certainly understand people on a much deeper level, you know, in terms of what they're going through. So being with my mom when she died, it was so awesome. I remember I was laying in my mom and dad's king bed and my sister was laying in the king bed with me and my mom was in a hospital bed next to us and all the family had left the room and we we all kind of knew she was dying i remember the hospice nurse saying she didn't have long and i went we were just laying there and Kathleen was my sister was holding on to my mom's hand and she said i feel like my mom i feel like mom wants me to let go of her hand so that she can die without holding on to anybody or anything And I said, okay, so we just laid there for a while. And then I heard my mom's breathing change and I went around to her hospital bed and I sat next to her and I put my hand on her heart and it was pounding and then it just stopped. 
and she took her last breath. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. I just threw myself on top of her and wept like a baby. And, you know, this is, this happened again, 22 years ago. It's a story I will never forget. I won't ever forget the three months that I was able to take care of her, kind of the bonding that happened with all the family. And then there's just kind of this really sacred time when somebody dies, it feels almost palpable it's really hard to explain until you're in it. And it doesn't happen all the time, but there really is this kind of divine, feels like a divine moment. And so, I mean, my mom's death, being with her and experiencing that, I feel really lucky when I can be with one of my patients when they die. And I do inpatient hospice. That I, I really like doing inpatient hospice because I can, you know, get to know my patients. You're with them on an eight-hour shift and you can develop, you know, trusting relationships so that they feel good, you know, by the time they are dying, that you're going to do everything you can in your power to help them die comfortably and peacefully, whatever that means, whether it be, you know, morphine, Ativan, sitting next to them, you know, putting a fan on them, whatever they need. I had a patient recently who she said, I'm almost finished, Beth. And I grabbed her hand and I said, I know I'm going to miss you. And she said, it's okay. It's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And I said, what's next? And she goes, I don't know. I don't know what's next. I'll let you know, though, as soon as I know. So, you know, I just, I mean, these kind of, you know, we're having these conversations, right, right now. And it's, and the conversations that I have in the hospice home are in real time. And, you know, it's just, it's so very real and rich. And I, yeah, I mean, I had another experience where I had a patient who we had developed this really sweet relationship. And she had asked me to be truthful with her and transparent always. And she had some episodes of shortness of breath where she would kind of wake up panicky. And she was really mad at me one day. And she said, I don't want to wake up like this. I don't want to wake up in a panic because I can't breathe. Can you please help me? And I said, yes. And so we talked about morphine and Ativan and how we could schedule it rather than give it to her as needed. And I said, so if that feels okay, we can schedule your morphine. You might get more sleepy. You might be not as clear. Are you comfortable with that? And she said, I don't want to do that today. And the next day, same thing happened. And I said, we talked about scheduling your morphine. Are you comfortable with that? And she said, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. So we scheduled her morphine and Ativan. And about five days later, I was on and she had, she was in the active dying phase and I sat down with her and, you know, she wasn't able to respond. She was yeah, actively dying is just kind of this entirely different state. You, you know that they're close to dying. And so I just sat next to her and I, I stroked her arm and the CNA came in and sat down next to the bedside and she held her hand and we just sat with her for 20 minutes while she was actively dying and she breathed her last breath and it felt You know, it just feels so powerful to be with somebody as they're exiting this earth. And a lot of it is probably because, you know, I feel connected to these patients, but I also feel like they trust, 
me and they've relaxed enough. And, you know, it's just such a process when people are dying and, and for her to get to that point where she could make decisions about her life and her death and know that someone was going to honor her wishes. I mean, I felt really lucky that I was, you know, one of the people there at her last final moments. And yeah, I mean, it just feels really powerful to be able to advocate for people at the end of their life and give them a really as beautiful of a death as possible. So, yeah, I mean, it's just an honor, honestly. It really is. I could never be a teacher. And it's, it's, uh, (laughs) well, it's like you were meant for this. And what a, I mean, it wouldn't, it would be, how would I phrase this? Like a, a disservice or something if you were a teacher because some teachers wouldn't be able to do the work that you're doing and what you're doing right. is work as Jason's saying that not many people can or want to do. And I have two questions that came up as you were speaking. One is as you're talking about this and, and the whole honor and, and I'm just listening and feeling grateful for the work that you do. It brings up this idea that my mom and other people have have brought up. Whereas if you don't have children, which Jason and I, we're not together as a couple, but (laughs) separately, we have both chosen or Jason. Well, how do I put this? Jason right now in his life has chosen not to have children. I'm on the fence, but leaning not to having children. And my mother and others have said to me, well, what happens when you die and there's no one there to take care of you or there's no one there to be with you? Or even actually, if you're not in a relationship, like it doesn't have to be children. You know, some people want to be in relationships because they want companionship as if like you can take someone with you or something or you're guaranteed they're going to be there by the bedside. But I would imagine statistically, most people's family aren't there when they pass away. Either no one's there at all or it's the hospice person or someone else. A, is that statistic true? And B, like, do you have any further observations about the importance of having family members or loved ones there when you pass? Is it is it really going to make a difference or is it just kind of like an, a nice perk or something? It's hard to hard to ask the question, but I'm curious what your perspectives are. <laughs> Well, I think if you had a child to take care of you specifically when you die, I don't think that's a good reason to have a child. (laughs) Because there are a lot of people who have children whose children aren't at the bedside for whatever reason. You know, a lot of times they live cross country and they can't get there or, you know, they're not comfortable with it or there's an estranged relationship. Definitely a lot of There are a lot of family. I have no idea what the statistic is in terms of, you know, how many family members are actually with somebody when they die. I do feel like those are some of the most beautiful deaths are when patients' loved ones are present at the bedside. And it doesn't have to be family. It can be friends. There was this one patient who was maybe a Buddhist and she had Buddhist friends who came in and they chanted at her bedside as she died and after she died and, you know, they weren't, they weren't blood relationship. They were sisters, you know, and and from another mother, I guess. And they, you know, it was a really exquisite way to exit the earth, even though it wasn't blood relationship. So 
I think that all bets are off right now. I mean, also, we live in America in a culture where we don't really do this, you know, extended family, extended families living together, at least in my culture, we don't. I mean, my husband and I, we don't have any family that live in Portland, Oregon. All of our family are in other places in the U.S., So I think just all bets are off when people are dying. I mean, you know, you just don't know who is going to be there and who can be there. I think a lot about my friends because I feel like my girlfriends are, I have some really amazing women in my life. You know, my family will probably be there for me, but I know the women ladies, they're going to bring me like my red wine at night and they're going to like massage my feet and they're going to, you know, (laughs) bring me things that I want and kind of anticipate my needs on a different level. So that's not why I nurture my relationships, but I do think about that on occasion that, you know, they will be part of my, you know, end of life circle, most likely. So I think it's important to have people you trust in your life, you know, for the end of your life. Yeah. And I love that point that you made about it not being a good reason to have children (laughs) or to pick a partner because you're not even guaranteed to have a good relationship with someone at that point or that they'll be still alive or they'll be able to be there. I mean, there's there's so many factors, but I think some people do think about this. Like they, they bring people in their life to reduce loneliness. They bring people in their life to have their needs met. And I think it's really important that we think we realize that those people have their own needs and desires and things that might not be in alignment. And it feels just like such a burden to place on someone, but it does bring me into the other question I wanted to ask And there's a tie in here because my dad, I felt it was so interesting. Like I was grieving my grandfather and, you know, I was close to all my grandparents, but my grandfather, he was the last grandparent I had and we had the deepest relationship. And not only was I afraid of my grandfather dying, but my sister and I were both afraid of how our dad was going to process it. And my dad was vastly different in some ways after his dad passed. It was a fascinating thing to witness. He completely surprised me, his reaction. And I don't know if it was like a coping mechanism or what, but my dad actually felt lighter and it brought him closer to me and my sister. My dad started, I've always been close to my dad, but it was another level that I experienced because my dad started calling me more. He was super close to both his parents. So he would call them all the time when they were alive. When they passed and both of them passed, it was almost like that transferred to me and my sister. So then he started calling us and checking it like, and I, I don't, I wasn't expecting that. And I was, I remember when he came back, he was there in the hospice center when my grandfather passed. And when he came home from that, in between that and the funeral, he was like lighter because I think the the emotional weight of anticipating his dad's death was so heavy. And it was like, I thought he, I was so afraid of witnessing my father in that grief. And I, I just didn't, I was like, how am I going to handle this? How am I going to process his grief and my grief at the same time? How am I going to be there for my father? And 
it was actually in some ways easier than I thought. And that also comes back around to the beginning, like Jason's fears, like sometimes our fear is heavier than the actual experience. Sometimes the experience is actually nowhere near as bad, but we spend all this time worrying about it. But my question for you is around like, how have you witnessed like if there is any sort of like (laughs) piece of advice around this, like ways that you've seen people help others through grief, you know, like in hindsight, were there some things that I could have been more prepared with to help my dad through his grief and other people's grief, whether they're losing a dog or an, an, a companion animal versus a human being. I often wonder, like, how can I show up and be supportive when somebody else loses someone that I'm not attached to? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you reflect on and witness in your work? Yeah, there's a beautiful book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. I think the author is Meg Devine, and she also has a you know, website and all these other things, but she, it's, it's a beautiful book about the grief process. So this is not exactly my area of expertise, but in terms of being with patients, you know, for the last 16 years of my nursing career in hospice, I think showing up, like you said, Whitney is the most important thing. Just being there, leaning into it. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Nobody likes to really be around that, the death and but it's very isolating, right? I mean, when somebody's dying and when somebody's taking care of somebody who's dying, it can be very isolating because people are afraid of it and they don't necessarily want to talk about the elephant in the room and they don't want to cause any undue anxiety. So I think showing up, being gentle, being quiet sometimes. <laughs> I hear not approaching them in the grocery store and asking them how they're really doing while they're looking at the eggplants. I hear that's you know, not a great call. You know, when people are grieving, there's so many landmines is what Meg Devine calls them out there where you can never really anticipate. Like, and she talks about that being in the grocery store and patients, I mean, and somebody grabbing a thing of pasta and then they remember, you know, their husband who just died and they had pasta, you know, before they died, the week before they died or something like that. Their triggers are everywhere. And so I think being really gentle with people who are in the grief process and not having it be your agenda, but waiting, being there and then waiting for them to, you know, maybe bring it up when they're comfortable and ready and telling them I'm here for you. Just let me know how I can support you. Yeah, I think I love that last piece of just asking someone, how can you be there for them? Because I think a lot of us make assumptions based on what would make us comfortable. And and then there's someone like me who like wants to anticipate and support. But sometimes my anticipation is is like too much or something, right? Because again, (laughs) as I witnessed with my dad, there was no way for me to prepare because it was a very surprising experience. Another one of us had gone through and I don't think that I messed it up and I don't think I could have prepared for it. It was just was what it was. And I've witnessed grief and, and, you know, it's also that interesting thing, Jason, coming back to your fear one more time to bring it full circle is like, we have animals. We don't have children, but (laughs) Jason and I each have animals. And I, think way too much 
about what it'll be like when my dog passes away. And like that fear within me, that's the the fear that I hold on. It's like, I feel a little bit more comfortable, maybe just by cognitive dissonance about my parents and my sister passing away or other loved ones. But like with my dog, I'm like so afraid of what that's going to be like. But I think the conclusion I keep coming back to is I'm like, well, I know one thing for sure that it's going to hurt, but I have no idea what it's going to be like until I'm there. And I can't know that. And I just have to be present and gentle with myself. And those moments actually give me an opportunity to, to truly be present with my dog. And every time I think them, I just go and spend a minute with her and I savor her. And I'm just like, I don't know how much time we have left together, but here we are right now. That's all I know how to do. (laughs) You know, and I think the same is true with friends and my parents and I guess there's no way to like truly prepare is like, <laughs> it's like what I keep coming back to as much as I would find comfort in preparation. I am trying to accept that there's, that's not really a possible thing to do around death. Do you feel that way too, Jason? Like after reflecting on this whole conversation, like I'm curious, like coming back to where you started at, at the beginning What have you taken away from this? And how are you feeling now after spending an hour discussing all these hard things? It's tough to answer. It's the awareness of the inevitability of something we cannot escape. You know, I don't want to get into (laughs) some of the stuff, Beth, that Whitney and I have pontificated on have been like, are we going to get to a point in the next 10 to 15 years where we can you know, upload our consciousness to a mainframe like Avatar and live in a different body. I I don't want to get into that because we're not there yet. Could it happen? Maybe. We don't know. Technology, it could. But for all intents and purposes, it's the awareness of the inevitability that we're going to leave these bodies at some point. I think, God, how do I even answer this? It's like staring into the unknown and saying, I have an idea that I'm going to feel crushed when it happens, when I lose my animals, my mother, my loved ones, and having lost loved ones suddenly to accidents and things like that in the past. I know what grieving feels like. I know what it's like to grieve the death of someone very close to me, but it's not like that That feels like it's, <laughs> it's it doesn't feel like rehearsal. I don't know. It's a hard thing to answer, Whitney, because you know you bring up your dad and, and how you observed it being this lightness. Maybe this tension and this anxiety I feel around you know losing my dog and my cats and my mom and who knows who's going to go first with you and me, Whitney. I don't, one of us is going to go first. I, I mean, you know, we're best friends. It's like one of us will grieve the loss of, of you and I. Like It's very real. I don't know. I would like to say that I feel a sense of comfort after this conversation with with you, Beth, because I do feel a deeper level of comfort, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm like, all right, I'm prepared. Whoever, whoever's <laughs> going to kick the bucket next, I'm ready. I'm ready for you. <laughs> it's a deep sense of comfort, especially with you describing the warmth and the light and the peace and the freedom and the things you've observed. I feel a deep comfort as you were describing what you've observed and, and the care you've given to people. But I don't know when the moment comes, I have no idea. I can think I know, to your point, Whitney, right? The anticipation of pain, the anticipation of my own emotional suffering. But until it happens, I, I have no idea. And you know, it's, it's as we get to the end here, I did want to say a couple things that were on my mind. You know, 
I saw an interview with Keanu Reeves like a year and a half ago, two years, 2019, pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic Keanu Reeves. And he was with Stephen Colbert and Stephen Colbert was asking him some pretty deep questions. And Stephen Colbert asked Keanu, he said, what do you think happens after we die? And, you know, there was like a really pregnant pause. I mean, Keanu really took that question in. He said, I don't know what happens to us, but I know that the people who love us will miss us. And it was just the, deli- it seems so simple to say it because I'm not saying it in the Keanu voice. Maybe if I said <laughs> it in the Keanu voice, it would translate, but it was just so profound in its simplicity. I don't know what happens, but I do know that the people who love us will miss us. And like, I remember crying, I'm watching it just bawling. So I know that much to be true, that the people I love, I will miss them terribly. You know, I don't know. I feel like I need to like take a moment right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, such a touchy subject. And I, I guess my last question for you, Beth, is do you feel like you're like used to all these different reactions people have on the subject matter? Like, does it feel familiar and easy or is everybody's reaction different for you or is everyone's death different for you? Yeah, I mean, everybody's reactions are different and every death is different. And that is the beauty of science. (laughs) You know, I mean, medicine is so scientific and we think we have all the answers, but there's so much that we don't know and we can't anticipate. And, you know, that's also the beauty of all of this. Um, I do think that when we ponder our death, I just want to come over and hug Jason. (laughs) When we ponder our death, we do live life in a more present way. And so I think these conversations are good. You know, when you guys talked about, you know, people who contemplate suicide or people who contemplate the world ending in nine years or something, I, you know, my hope is that people can really look at their lives and say, what is this all for? How do I want to live my life? How do I want to be in this world? How do I want to be with people or with my animals? What's important to me? What will make this world a better place? I do think pondering your death makes you do things that you want to do, but I think it also hopefully makes you live with a little more integrity. Yeah. I mean, I understand the hedonistic quality after somebody ponders their death and they just say, you know, screw it. I want to you know, live off the grid and whatever, eat chocolate all day. I just, I feel like meaning is such a big part of life and our existence and our happiness. And I think pondering my death certainly helps me to choose things in my life that I get meaning from, whether it be relationships, certain relationships, friendships, the work that I do, you know what I continue to do. You know, you guys are doing this podcast. This might get uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I think about the just the title of your podcast and I don't know. I love that this podcast exists. I, I didn't know about it until you guys reached out to me. And you really do broach a lot of topics that are uncomfortable, every last one of them. And I think we live in 
yeah, I, I'm kind of like tired of the whole, everything is fine. I'm fine. You're fine. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing because it does add depth to people's lives and it makes them ponder, you know, get a little deeper. And so thank you guys for the work that you're doing. Well, the appreciation is absolutely mutual, Beth, and you coming on here to just have a real open, loving discussion about this. I feel like, you know, I've been held in a space of allowing with you. You know, I, I, I would hope and pray that at the end of my life that I would have someone with your warmth, your love, your care watching over me because your, your presence, your personality, your wisdom is so palpable. And I can't think of a better human being to discuss this extremely uncomfortable subject for a lot of people than you. And for you, dear listener, if, if you have resonated as deeply as we have with Beth and her work and her perspectives, we want to direct you to all of Beth's links that we will have on our website, which is again, wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the podcast section. It will take you to the transcript in the show notes for this episode with Beth Cavanaugh. Her website again is bethcavanaugh.com, B-E-T-H-C-A-V-E-N-A-U-G-H.com. You can find her book, some light at the end there. If you would like to learn more about getting perspectives on a compassionate guide to understand the process of dying. And again, her blog is just filled with so many incredibly useful, heartfelt articles about this subject. And again, I just feel to take it back to the beginning, Beth, discovering you and your work is the perfect time for me. And I know Whitney probably feels the same because of the depth and the frequency of conversations we've been having around this in our personal life. So thank you for being a gift. Thank you for your service to this world. And we're just so grateful to have you here. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your honesty and your wisdom. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.